Hey everyone, we have received exceptional support for the Diaries Plus. It means so much to us. It's been a tough year for us. We're down on sponsors, but you keep lifting us up and making this show possible. And because of that, we get to keep making more cool shows for you. So today we're releasing a new series on Diaries Plus called Good, Good, Bad. Trips, adventures, and fiascos that define our lives. On New Year's Eve 2023, Mason Gravelly slid a stand-up paddleboard into the tannin-stained waters of Lake Okeechobee and embarked on an adventure he's been dreaming of for years, an unsupported crossing of one of our country's biggest lakes. Between the weather, toxic algae, and alligators, he was told it was preposterous. But Mason's journey was a culmination of years of Florida adventures and a passion for conservation. Here's a little taste of the first good, good, bad episode, Alligator Lake. Wherever you are is an adventurous place to people that aren't from there. And so it's like, I'll be honest, right now at this point in my life, I would never leave within an hour or two of my home if I could. And I'd probably, that's probably going to change at some point. But right now, that's like my reality. And I did not see that coming. Like, I I would have laughed at you if you you said that's the way you're going to think in five years. And so... It, it, all of us have to go through it. Like, oh, adventure is elsewhere or life and fulfillment and what we're looking for is elsewhere. And I think part of maturing and just part of just living this life is one, going through that. And two, <laughs> realizing everything you need is right here. You know, how many times have people told us that, but it, it takes learning it yourself, you know? Subscribe to Plus Now for the full story and access to all new episodes. As always, Thank you for your support. Now, on to the show. Happy fall, everyone. The kids, they just went back to school. Becca's about to go on a bike trip. I'm going to go see some friends in Utah. It's pretty incredible. I'm a little bit nervous still, just because this pandemic will not end. But I am really looking forward to a day when I can return without hesitancy to my relationships and friendships and partnerships because I really missed it over the last year and a half. Today we're running two stories, two shorts about relationships, friendships, partnerships, and we're pretty excited about them because I don't know if you're like me, that's why we do it, to go spend time outdoors with people we love, like, and enjoy. So hope you enjoy two shorts coming at you. My three-year love-hate relationship with my Ford Explorer, conspicuously named the Exploder, had just ended. Something about the axles being ready to fall off at any minute? After weeks of a carless existence, bumming rides up and down the canyons outside Estes Park had gotten old. I scanned Craigslist for a car I could call home, expanding my search radius every day that I didn't find one in my budget. But then I saw it a 1997 Chevy Astro van. Low miles, just one owner since it was bought new, and a price I could afford. 
I hitched one last ride down the canyon to Boulder, hopped on a bus to Denver, walked to the Greyhound station, and headed west toward Grand Junction. I had no return ticket. The van's owner, a grandmother of 12, kept the kind of meticulous records that mechanics dream about. She handed me the keys and a logbook of van activity, including every time she filled the gas tank for 20 years. Within a few hours, I was back on I-70 heading home, as free as I had ever been. The van even had its own name, declared on a sticker right under the rear window, Bozarth Number 1. With my new home on wheels, I knew that soon I'd enjoy endless days of climbing and perfect nights curled up in my very own cocoon. Back in Estes, I got to work on some renovations. Bozarth had that distinct vintage smell, and the only way I could figure to get rid of it once and for all was to rip everything out. The bench seats went to the dump, along with the floor-to-ceiling carpet. All that remained was a metal box. Imagining that I would travel primarily in warm places, I skimped on bulky insulation in favor of a few more inches of headspace. Then I started on the bed. I sat down on the floor, measured my height, and built the frame to my exact length. To save money, Instead of installing a slick swivel for the passenger seat, I shoved a socket wrench in my glove compartment. Whenever I wanted the chair to face a different direction, I could simply unscrew the bolts, turn the chair around, and bolt it back down. The beauty of my life with Bozarth was that I'd be able to do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. I was entering that van a directionless caterpillar, but one day I'd emerge as the brave, independent person I wanted to be. Or so I thought. I migrated to Moab for the winter, giddy about the climbing I'd do in the coming months. I did not anticipate how wildly winter temperatures would swing in the desert. So while I ran dusty trails in Canyonlands and climbed splitter cracks in Indian Creek under the warm desert sun, I also spent my nights cursing the fact that I'd rushed through the insulation stage of my van renovation. I had to turn on my little propane heater just to get myself out from under my two down sleeping bags. But as soon as I turned the heater on, the frozen condensation would begin to melt. So first, I'd cover everything in the van with dish towels before jumping in the front seat to head to the fitness center for a warm shower to start the day. Halfway through the winter, I found myself hopelessly in love. I stationed Bozarth in the parking lot outside the gear shop where my new boyfriend worked. He swore it was a totally legit bivy spot. But then, at three in the morning one night, a cop banged on the glass of Bozarth's flimsy sliding door window and sternly told us that we needed to leave immediately. He mentioned he probably wouldn't be back to check on us again until six o'clock. We got the hint, thanked him profusely, and fell back into bed, giggling like children who had just snuck out of the house. 
but even all the laps between Moab and Salt Lake City, all the snug nights in Bozarth, couldn't have saved that relationship. When it went up in smoke weeks later, I stared at the miniature Christmas stockings I had hung up for us and filled the nine square feet of floor space with crumpled tissues. Not long ago, I'd wanted nothing more than my independence and the open road. Now, Bozarth felt overwhelmingly empty. But no matter how badly I wanted to share these cold desert nights with a warm body, it was just me and my trusty metal box. Bozarth might have been my number one, as his sticker unabashedly implied, but I couldn't help but look for someone to ride shotgun. Spring arrived, and I felt my heartache thaw with the longer days. Free to roam, I pointed my wheels home toward California. The next day, Bozarth soared on familiar turns through the Sierra Nevada. We passed granite slabs, lakes like glass, trees too big to wrap your arms around, and finally swooped down into Yosemite Valley. I showed up feeling strong, but when I signed myself up for a huge climbing mission with my friend Josie, we got instantly stifled by the heat. We retreated to the valley floor to soothe our dehydrated bodies in the river, where she introduced me to her friend, Bud. Before long, I got swept away again and began spending most of my time in Bud's employee housing. It wasn't exactly a place I could call my own, though, and I made a point to never bring my things inside. I went out to visit Bozarth each morning and gather my climbing gear for the day. I committed to a house for the winter with my new partner, but I still couldn't bear to give up Bozarth or the freedom he allowed me. If this relationship vanished too, I knew Bozarth would catch me. I never had to worry about being stuck, in a crappy relationship or at a rainy crag. With my four-wheeled abode, I could always follow my heart. So even though Bozarth spent most of the winter parked in the driveway, I never considered letting him go. The following spring, I started to get sick of a few of Bozarth's unique traits. The alternator was on the fritz again, even though I had replaced it twice that winter. The oil leaked, and the lack of air conditioning became a real issue in the desert heat. Bud and I planned a trip to bask in the warm sandstone of Red Rock Canyon, and even though I never dared to say it out loud, I feared this might be one of the last trips Bozarth and I would take together. We had another passenger now, and the bed was not built for two. We stacked crates next to the mattress so Bud could extend one leg fully. On our third day driving around the loop road, I felt the all-too-familiar stomach jolt when the check engine light turned on. I soon found myself in downtown Las Vegas confronting an expensive mechanics bill. With no other choice, I forked over the money so we could get back home. As Mount Wilson faded in the rearview mirror on our way back to Yosemite, we approached the largest neon sign I had ever seen. Its words glowed unmistakably. Bozarth number one. I nearly spat out my coffee as I drove past countless cars in the big paved lots of Ed Bozarth Chevrolet. I realized there were literally thousands of Bozarths, each with their own identical sticker claiming to be number one. I felt deceived. My Bozarth wasn't really number one. But as the miles stretched on toward California, I couldn't help but laugh. My van would always be number one to me.
That summer, my relationship with Bud kept growing as we settled into a new home together, and I knew the time had come. I ripped a piece of paper from my notebook and with a box of crayons, drafted Bozarth's for sale flyer. I knew he had a few adventures left in his weary bones, but it was time for someone else to determine what those would be. I taped the flyer to the board in Camp 4, the popular trading post for Yosemite climbers. Soon we had a buyer, a couple who worked at the Yosemite Valley Clinic. They were planning a winter road trip across the West, and this was their dream rig. I wished them well on their trip and bought a little economy car. With Bud's truck, we just didn't need another gas guzzler. But it's pretty hard to sleep in a Prius, and I felt scared that giving up Bozarth meant giving up my freedom. But I had nothing to run from anymore. Moving forward in my relationship meant stepping in with both feet and trading my escape hatch for a hatchback. In the years since, Bud and I got married. We bought and renovated a vintage tow-behind camper, a much more spacious option for the two of us in our 70-pound dog. I have a car with air conditioning and cruise control, and I don't really miss the constant dread that Bozarth might break down at any second. But every time I see an Astro van on the road, flying down Tioga Pass or puttering along dirt tracks in the desert, I think about that first day I took Bozarth home, bursting with the freedom of the open road. I wave to each Astrovan pilot I pass, imagining that they're in their very own Bozarth number one, using their wheels to chase the best each season has to offer. And while I love traveling with my lifetime adventure partner, every few months, I'll feel that call to hit the road on my own, even if I have to curl up in the back of my Prius to do it. I'm Lauren Delaney Miller, and this is my short. Thanks for sharing your story, Lauren. Next up, we'll hear from Chuck Radis about a memorable hiking trip with his wife of 40 years. That's after a short break. My wife, Sandy, and I lie on ground pads in a dense thicket of coyote willow and rabbit brush a few steps from the Perea River. Resting in the dappled shade to escape the heat, we hear the water churn below the embankment where it drops over a gray ledge. We have backpacked 30 miles through one of the longest slot canyons in the world, with about eight miles to go. And at times, the trail skirts the edge of the river, but for the most part, the easiest and safest route downstream is the Perea itself. We are hiking the river. A hot breeze penetrates the thicket where we rest. I breathe in and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Did I say it's hot? It's hot. I slide over until our hips touch. We're an older couple, married 40 years, but still in reasonably good shape. I am between surgeries, a meniscus repair, a pinned toe, several partially successful foot surgeries complete with a plate and screws. Sandy remains ageless, except for scattered age spots on her cheeks and a gimpy back. Sometimes, I think she tells me her left hip aches just to make me feel better.
The night is for our trip began two years ago when Sandy brought home a secondhand coffee table book, Walking Distance, Extraordinary Hikes for Ordinary People. The description of the 38-mile Perea River Canyon Trail riveted us. A river flowing through a canyon so narrow in places you could nearly touch both 500-foot walls. As we read and reread the chapter, the appeal of a desert adventure settled into our bones. We both knew this trip posed significant risks. There was no bailout road. Upstream thunderstorms could trigger flash floods. We could trip, dislocate a shoulder, break a leg, suffer a concussion. These were all real concerns. Were we too old for this adventure? That winter, as wind and snow pummeled our home on Peaks Island off the coast of Maine, we poured over maps of the Perea River. Sandy obtained a permit. I fired up our old propane stove, replaced the batteries in our headlamps, located my pocket knife and compass, and updated our first aid kit. We loaded our packs with bricks and tramped up and down Brook Lane, the steepest hill on the island. I did a lot of push-ups and sit-ups. My night vision is terrible. I wear my hearing aids when I think of it. Sandy, don't get me going. I'm truly jealous. That April, we waded into the Perea River at dawn. We planned to hike about 10 miles each day and spend three nights in the canyon, four days total. As we took our first steps, the silty water swallowed our trail. Clumps of brilliant yellow desert primrose bloomed along the riverbank. Four miles downstream, the river entered a narrow fluted canyon and we stopped and gazed at the towering walls in silent awe. Craning my neck, I watched a white cloud drift by. At 10 a.m., sunlight had not yet penetrated the canyon floor. Over the next few hours, our focus sharpened and time slowed down. We poked along the knee-deep riverbed with our hiking poles and avoided whirls around protruding rocks where the current scooped deeper troughs. Sandy had a particular knack for recognizing the safest route. Where the current threatened to knock us off our feet, she often spied a faint trail leading up into the willows where other hikers briefly left the riverbed. That night, we set up camp on a sandy alcove. At dusk, a female hiker picked her way downstream carrying a heavy backpack. She was the only person we saw the entire trip. On our second day in the canyon, I thought I saw a raindrop dimple the surface of the water, and then another. Overhead, wisps of clouds flanked the sun. Sandy probed the water with her hiking pole midstream. I scanned the side walls of the canyon. For another mile or two, we'd still be in the high-risk zone of the Perea. If the waters rose abruptly, there'd be no escape. I picked up the pace, and Sandy quietly matched it. An hour later, Sandy said, Did you see the raindrops? I told her I had. 
but none for the past hour. We agreed that the danger had passed, but continued to eye the river anxiously. We passed several campsites strewn with debris from previous floods and pushed on. My legs were getting wobbly. We needed a break, or more accurately, I needed a break. We took off our backpacks and sat on a sandstone ledge comfortably above the flood zone. I discreetly stuck a piece of driftwood into the riverbed at the water's edge while we ate peanut butter sandwiches and apples. When we finished, the water level hadn't changed. Good. That night, we camped on a bluff beneath a swatch of coal-black sky. The liquid, descending call of a canyon wren echoing up and down the river. I patched up Sandy's blisters where the wet sand had worked its way inside her socks. When the morning sun cleared the eastern cliffs, a flash of heat permeated the canyon. I fished out my baseball cap and slathered on more sun protection. For the next two days, we settled into a rhythm. We hiked up to ten hours a day, resting where an occasional cottonwood provided shade. Sandy and I talked less and less, and when we did, I noticed a note of irritation in her voice. We were down to our last bottle of water. The dependable springs on our map of the river were bone dry. In a pinch, I knew we could filter the river water and add iodine tablets, but that water tasted like grout. With only a few drops of water left in our bottles, I spied a patch of scrub oak along the river. Pulling aside a thicket of underbrush, I was relieved to see a delicate seep of clear, precious liquid dripping over an exposed root. It took 20 minutes for the water bottles to fill. In the afternoon of our fourth day, the canyon widened into a sun-baked valley. A curtain of heat rose from the desert floor. We nearly fell where the current dropped over a hidden ledge. Sandy looked over to me. I'm getting a little tired, she said. We needed to rest. A thicket of coyote willow and rabbit brush protected the far bank from the sun. We slipped into the brush, laid out our ground pads, and sipped from our last water bottle. Amid the hum of bees and gnats and skittering of curious lizards, we dozed. awakened, Sandy is making a soft cooing noise. She looks beautiful. The temperature has dropped. The sun sits behind the mountains. I touch her elbow and her eyes open. Is it time? She asks. Yes. Ready? I figure we have six to eight miles before we reach the confluence where the Perea empties into the Colorado River. But it's only a guess. Sandy reties her sneakers and duck walks out of the thicket. We sidestep down the embankment, shoulder our packs, and enter the river. The water feels like an old friend, the silt somehow reassuring and calming. There's a twig stuck in Sandy's hair next to her hair clasps, the tortoise-colored one she's worn nearly every day since we first met 41 years ago. I pick away the twig and ask, That hair clasp... Is it new? Sandy laughs. 
A long shadow flows across the valley. A soft breeze strokes our backs. Sandy says that her hips are stiff, but she's moving through the water like the graceful athlete she once was and still is. In a week, a fresh layer of skin will cover her heels. My blackened toenails will either grow out or fall off. There are no signs, no roads, no early evening lights in the distance to guide us, but I'm not worried. We're on a river trail pointing south, and I'm hiking with my best friend. My name is Chuck Radis, and this is my short. Thank you, Lauren and Chuck, for sharing your stories. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdiaries.com, where you can also find all the music used in the show, which today is Bradley Carter, Ken Christensen, Jazar, John Barry, Kai Engel, and Brennan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the Artists or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Nice Koto composed our theme song, and you can find the links, like I said, at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Cordy Lizares with additional production help from Ashley Langholz and Becca Call. Artwork by Anya Miller. Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fitz Call, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.